0: Hello and welcome to the BVC Podcast. Here at Brownsburg Vineyard Church, we want you to know that we are a group of ordinary people that serve an extraordinary God. Our mission is to honor God and advance His kingdom by building disciples who will give their lives to changing the world. Whether you are local or joining us from a distance, we want to thank you for being a part of our family. To learn more about us, you can visit thebvchurch.com. Thanks for listening and enjoy this week's message. some point, uh, some group had done a sock drive in September and had come up with the name so- uh, Soctember. And we were doing ours in August, and so we considered doing Saugest, but then we thought, Saugust, it just doesn't sound good for a sock drive, so we just called it a sock drive, for lack of a better term. So next year, we'll do it in September, and we'll call it Soctember. So uh, let me just pray before we start today's message. So God, I thank you after what you've been doing here this morning, God, I thank you that in as much as Christianity has its traditions and its practices and its disciplines, at the heart of our faith is a living God, is, is a living and active Word. And so when we gather together, we're not just doing religious routines, we are meeting with a person. And so I thank you for your person being here, God. Your Father, Heart, the power of the Holy Spirit, Spirit of Revelation, the salvation of Jesus being in this place. I thank you that, that at the heart of what we gather is meeting with someone who is so much greater than us. So even as we continue some of the same routines that we do here today, I, I pray that we would we would see and, and understand that it transcends kind of routines and it's really a relationship. And so I do pray, as as Christian said, that everyone here would encounter you today because that is our mission. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 So um, there aren't a lot of weeks in which I really enjoy being on, on social media, uh, but this past week is traditionally one of the weeks that I really do enjoy social media because Even though our children are all growing and, uh, through elementary, high school, and even college, uh, I still enjoy seeing all of the pictures of the kids going back to school on the first day of school with their new shoes and new clothes and new backpack and fresh haircut. And it's such a time of celebration. It's such a a time of excitement. And uh, most importantly, the parents are excited that their kids aren't home all day and that they get to go to school. But It's just a time of celebration, of of new beginnings, of excitement and expectation, and that's what you kind of see captured in all of those photos that you see on Facebook the week that the kids go back to school. But that same sense of anticipation and excitement is not necessarily the emotions that everyone throughout history has experienced on their first day in school. And... That was most definitely not the emotions that six-year-old Ruby Bridges felt on November 14, 1960, when she walked into William France Elementary School in New Orleans, Louisiana. A couple months before Ruby Bridges was born, in 1954, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that segregated schools were a violation of the Constitution and that schools needed to be integrated. But because of the ongoing racism in the South and resistance to integration, it took six years before Ruby was allowed to walk in to a white school. And on that first day that she walked into William Franz Elementary, she didn't walk in with any of her friends. She walked in alone. Because even though it was a law that schools had to be integrated in uh, New Orleans, black students had to write a test to prove that they were good enough to get into white schools. And in all of New Orleans, only six students passed that test. Two decided to stay in their traditional black schools. Three went to another school, leaving Ruby being the only one walking into her school. So she wasn't walking in with any of her friends. She wasn't even walking in with any of her parents, because it was far too dangerous for her parents to be there that day. Instead, Ruby walked in the first day of school flanked by U.S. Marshals because there was a crowd of over 150 people there with their signs yelling, their racial slurs at Ruby. A woman every day that Ruby walked into school threatened to poison her and kill her so Ruby couldn't eat the food served at the school in fear that she'd be poisoned. She had to bring her own food. People spat on her, and someone even fashioned a coffin and placed a young mannequin of a black girl inside the coffin as a threat to Ruby Bridges, and that's what she walked into every day. Ruby Bridges walked into school alone because all 576 other white students in that school had either intentionally boycotted the school or were too afraid to walk against the boycott. She also walked into the school alone that day because every single teacher in William France Elementary School boycotted her being there except for one, a teacher by the name of Barbara Henry, who on that particular day met with Ruby and taught Ruby one-on-one. And as the year would go on and the students would eventually return to the school, Ruby met with Barbara Henry one-on-one all year because it took a year before Ruby was actually allowed to be in the classroom. With other white students. During the height of the protests, Ruby's teacher noticed that every day when she walked into the school, she would stop and look at the crowd and, and mumble something, and then on the way home, she would stop again, leaving the school, and look at the crowd and, and mumble something as well. So her teacher asked her one day, she said, Ruby, I, I see that you're, you're saying something. Who, who are you talking to? And Ruby answered, I was talking to God and I was praying for the people in the street. Well, why were you doing that, asked the teacher. And Ruby answered, because I wanted to pray for them. Don't you think that they need prayer? And the teacher asked, where did you learn that? And Ruby answered for my mommy and my daddy and my minister at church. I pray every morning when I go to school and every afternoon when I go home. But Ruby, the teacher said, Those people have been so, so mean to you. You must have other feelings besides just wanting to pray for them. And Ruby answered, no, I just keep praying for them and hope God will be good to them. I always pray, please, dear God, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Little six-year-old Ruby Bridges was a light unto the world. Little six-year-old Ruby Bridges was a light onto a very, very dark world. And she was a light onto a very dark people who had allowed their minds and their hearts to be darkened by hatred and racism. Ruby Bridges was a light onto our country at a very, very dark time in our history. Today, as you can see, we're beginning a new series called Light It Up. And the purpose of this series is to learn, like Ruby Bridges did, how to let our light shine so that those around us will glorify God because of us. Kind of the key scripture that we're going to be settling around over the next four weeks is found in Matthew 5, and it says this, You are the light of the world. A city set on the hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let you... "...before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven." When we think of light, we tend to think of light in positive terms. And and we have images of, of positive examples of light. We might think of watching the sunrise on a cool, crisp summer morning. We might think of a birthday cake being brought towards us lit up with candles. We might think of uh, becoming famous and seeing our names in light. Or even when we're going through a difficult time, we always say there is a light at the end of the tunnel. And so light is a positive thing. We might even think of the star that shined down on the birth of Jesus Christ. We think of light in those positive terms. But it's imperative for us to understand that the purpose for which every single light was ever created was to be put in a place of darkness. The purpose for light is to stand in the darkness. And in that way, light is very confrontational. In that way, light stands against the darkness. In that way, light pushes back the darkness. In that way, light draws a line in the sand and says, this is light and that is dark. In that way, light makes a statement. Light creates value between what is important and what is not. Light, by very nature, is confrontational. And most importantly, what we see about light is that light absolutely refuses to blend in. Light, by very nature, stands out. And it refuses to blend in. To appreciate the Meaning of the words of Jesus that we just read, these were words that were part of what is called the Sermon on the Mount, essentially, the most ultimate teaching in Jesus Christ's ministry early on. in in, in His ministry and in the training of the disciples, you have this Sermon on the Mount, and and these these words are are important for us, but they're even more important when you understand kind of the historical context in which they were spoken. So if you could imagine in your mind this image. Jesus is standing there, and immediately in front of Him are seated in a circle the twelve disciples. Beyond the twelve disciples is a large crowd that have come To listen to him preach. But beyond the large crowd in the backdrop is the culture, the context in which all these people, including the disciples, are living. And when Jesus tells the disciples to be a light in the dark world, he understood the background, he understood the darkness that he was asking them to be a light unto. And so when Jesus said to them, be a light unto the world, he understood that the world that they lived in was a world that was dominated by the ruthless Roman Empire. He knew he was telling them to be a light unto a world in a culture where the Romans would crucify people for the smallest infraction. He would crucify thieves and anybody who dared question the Roman Empire. And it was into that cruel, that cruelty and that domination that Jesus said, go into that world and be a light into that world. Jesus understood in the background, in the culture that he was sending the disciples, that he was sending them into a culture that was filled with abject injustice. The worst kind of injustice you could imagine. Everywhere you turned, there was injustice. There was financial injustice. There was this onerous tax system where tax collectors would collect way more tax, taxes than what was needed. There was injustice towards women, and, and women played such a diminished role in cultures, and they had no voice. And, and women were suffering injustice. There was racial injustice. You had the Gentiles and Samaritans who were, who were seen as dogs and who had, had no place in society. There was all kinds of injustice everywhere you turned. And it was in the midst of that injustice. Talk about systematic injustice. It was there. And Jesus was saying, go into that system. Go into the midst of all of that injustice and let your light shine. When Jesus said to them, be a light unto your world, He knew that He was sending them into the world where there was depths of suffering that was beyond imagination. That there were people who were dealing with physical issues that there were no answers for. People who were lame and who were broken and who had leprosy and were actually kicked out of the city. And there was just this sense of suffering. And then ultimately, he knew he was sending them into a culture where even as Jewish people, the one place that they might turn is the religious center. The center of their faith being the the synagogue and the temple. Even that place was filled with darkness. That place was ruled by men whose hearts were dark. Men who everything they did and everything they said pushed people away from God. And the the religious judgment and condemnation only brought more darkness. So when Jesus said to them, be a light unto your world, Jesus knew this was the world that they were living in. And now we fast forward 2,000 some odd years later and imagine, if you will, that same scene. Jesus is here teaching. You are His disciples and beyond you is our own culture. The culture that we live in. And we have in our own culture our own forms of darkness. Sadly, On November 14th, 1960, the day that Ruby Ridges walked into William France Elementary was not the day that racism ended in this country. It continues to be an issue. And we continue our call as a church to shine our light on that issue. We continue to have suffering and injustice and brokenness in our own culture. People whose lives are just being torn apart. And that's our version of our own darkness. And it's as if Jesus is standing here today and in the same way that He spoke to the disciples, He is saying to you and me, be a light unto your world. In this context, be a light unto your world. For those high school students and college students who are in the room this morning who have started or will be starting school, what Jesus is saying to you is when you walk into your classrooms, be a light unto that classroom. When you're sitting in the cafeteria, be a light unto the conversations around that classroom. When you're in the locker room, be a light unto the students that you're in school with. For those of us who will wake up tomorrow morning and go to our businesses or go to our places of work, Jesus is saying there in your workplace, be a light unto your workplace. Where there is injustice, where there is condemnation, where, where there is control, where there is pain, where there is blindness and deception, be a light where there is darkness. Be a light in your workplaces those of us who are involved in the community coaching sports teams or having play dates with the neighbors or just getting involved in the community where you engage with the community and where you have leverage in the community be a light into the community and even in as much as you are part of this church and the people in this church or the places in this church that need light then be a light here understand that you come in here and you bring something And Jesus is calling each of us to be a light into our world. What we're going to do through these next four weeks is we're going to talk about the the characteristics. What are the characteristics that a Christian needs to possess and model in order to be a light unto the world? What are the characteristics that we need to have so that when people see us, they see God and glorify God because of us, and today we 're going to begin this series by talking about living fearlessly and the characteristic of fearlessness, because if there 's one thing that sets us apart in a society of anxiety and fear, it is living a fearless life i 'm going to share a scripture where we see the disciples acting fearlessly but but just by way of background, before I, I read this scripture, let me just uh, kind of share how we got here. So, Jesus was arrested, was crucified, died, and, and rose from the dead, spent some time with the apostles, and then he ascended into heaven, and then the apostles waited in the upper room. There was 40 people waiting in the upper room, Then the day of Pentecost came, and the Holy Spirit fell, and then the, the, the apostles were ministering, and then several days later, Peter and John are in their way, on the way into the temple and they come across a lame man who is begging who has no movement in his body no other way to make a living for himself who is suffering a great injustice and a great pain and that man says to Peter and John do you have any money and Peter ushers these famous words silver and gold I don't have but what I do have in the name of Jesus Christ rise up and walk And the lame man rises up and walks and it says he was walking and leaping and praising God. And so Peter and John and the lame man who's now walking and leaping, they walk into the temple and Peter and John are are showing out and lighting up and it's like a light show going on in the temple. Everybody is excited. Everybody's praising God. this, This dark place that was ruled by just shame and condemnation and rules upon rules upon rules. Now all of a sudden, they walk in and they turn the lights on and everybody is celebrating. And then in walks the religious leaders, and they say, we've got to shut this light show down. And so what they do is they arrest Peter and John. They throw them in prison for the night. They pull them out of prison the next morning, and they interrogate them. And what we'll read is kind of the conclusion of the trial. And it says this, this is the religious leaders. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. I want you to understand just the, the tension that it would have been for Peter and John standing there in front of those religious leaders because this was, these were the, the very same disciples who saw these very same religious leaders orchestrate the execution of Jesus Christ in this very same place. As Peter and John stood there, they knew that they were standing in the very same place that Jesus maybe two or three months ago had stood. And they were standing in front of and in the face of the religious leaders who had orchestrated Jesus' death. And it was in in, in that tension and in that, that place of threat that they were standing. And it was in that place of facing the potential same outcome as Jesus Christ that what we see come out of the disciples was this incredible light. This incredible fearlessness. This incredible boldness. They had not just been with Jesus, but what we see in this moment is that the disciples had finally become like Jesus. And they now shared the fearlessness that He had. And what this story does for us is it establishes a standard by which you and I are called to live our lives. It establishes a standard by which you and I are to say, I need to have that characteristic as well. And it establishes that as followers of Jesus Christ, we need to model the fearlessness of Jesus Christ. The apostles that day, Peter and John, modeled the fear- fearlessness of Jesus Christ. And if we're going to be a light unto the world, then we need to have that same fearlessness. Fearlessness. The disciples that day weren't operating out of self-confidence or a false ego or, or just moxie. After all, this was the, the same Peter who about two, two and a half months ago had actually denied Jesus. refused to even admit that he knew him. There's a, a Greek word for that, that word boldness, and there's different definitions in, in the Greek for that word boldness. One of the, the definitions for that word boldness that you see in that scripture is the behavior by which one becomes conspicuous or secures publicity. So think about that for a second. When talking about boldness, what the Bible is saying is that boldness is the behavior that makes other people see you. Boldness is the behavior that makes other people recognize you. Boldness is the behavior that causes you to stand out from the crowd. Boldness is the behavior that causes people to say, what is different or unique about that person? That's what boldness is. It was interesting. We were... I was talking to somebody in the church who, who shall go unnamed because they're an introvert, and we were talking about their introvertedness and, and how much when, whenever I um, say at the end of announcements, hey, everybody get up and say hi to your neighbor, how much that triggers their introvertedness and, and how nervous that makes them. And so, because I was using them as an example in my sermon, I decided not to uh, have you guys greet this morning to give them one Sunday off, and so... So there are introverts in this room. Can I have all my introverts stand up and shout and wave their hands? (laughs) Probably not. So you have those people who who are clearly introverts. But in reality, um, there is like a spectrum of introvertedness, right? On the one hand, there are those people who are firmly camped and live on the extreme of introvertedness. They never really want to leave there. And then there are others of us who are somewhere on that spectrum. Maybe we lean towards being extroverted at times, and we enjoy social interaction, and and we like that. But I think everybody in this room would agree that there are points and times during the day or during the week where we say, you know what, I just want to turn the lights off. I just want to step back. I just want to mind my own business. And I just want to fade into the background. But what we see from the gospel of Jesus Christ is regardless of where we are on that spectrum, that Christ compels us to live conspicuous lives. Whether we are an introvert or not, Christ compels us to live a life that people will notice us and see that there is something different in us. Christ compels us to live such a conspicuous life that when we walk into a room of darkness, we change the atmosphere. Christ calls us to live such conspicuous lives that when somebody is hurting and when somebody is living in darkness and when somebody somebody is blinded by the darkness around them, we walk into their lives and in that moment they see truth, they see grace, they see the, the heart of God. Christ calls us to live so conspicuously that, that when we walk into a place of, of injustice, all of a sudden, it is exposed for what it is, and truth and righteousness and justice are seen. Christ calls us to live that way. So, today I'm just going to share a couple of things that uh, living a fearless life means. Just two things that it means to live a fearless life. And the first one, living a fearless life means being indifferent to the cost being indifferent to the cost earlier i listed a bunch of positive images of light the images that come to mind when we think of light but but not everyone enjoys the light not everyone likes the light for those of you who have a teenager have ever been a teenager or who have come across a teenager in the wild you will know that the species of teenagers are nocturnal animals They live during the dark and they sleep through the light. And if you ever walk into a teenager's room at 11.30 in the morning and they're still sleeping and you turn the lights on, you will find out just how much they don't like the light. And being a light into the world will sometimes cost us something. We will sometimes get a negative reaction when we show up because people don't always appreciate what light does and what light is. And so when we do bring our light into the classroom, it may not mean that you become the most like kid in the class. When we do bring light into our offices and warehouses, it may not mean that you're the first one to be promoted. And when we do bring our light into our family gatherings, it doesn't mean that you will always be invited back to those very same family gatherings. When the disciples were standing before the religious leaders, the religious leaders were trying to figure out what to do. They didn't want to cause any more trouble, and Peter and John had really stirred things up, and so they didn't really want to overplay their hand. So what the religious leaders said to them, they said when the religious leaders had further threatened them, they let them go. So, so they kind of threatened Peter and John. They said, hey, you better turn the lights down. Quit letting your light shine. Dim those lights a little bit or you're going to be in trouble. We read the end of that verse and it says that they let them go. And so sometimes it's easy just to read over that verse and say they were threatened and they got to let go. So the threat wasn't that big of a deal, right? Nothing ever came of the threat. And it would be easy to read there in Acts 4.21 and just think that it was an empty threat. But all you have to do is turn three pages over in your Bible to Acts 7. And what you'll find there is you'll find the arrest of the Apostle Stephen and you'll find the execution and the stoning of Stephen because he let his light shine. There will be a cost to shining your light. And that is why we need fearlessness because fear will get in the way of us shining our light if we allow it. Ruby Bridges wasn't the only one who paid a price to walk into William Franz Elementary School on that day. Her father was immediately fired from the job that he had at the gas station. Her parents were not allowed to shop at the local grocery store like they had always had before. They were barred from going to the grocery store. Her grandparents, who were uh, sharecroppers, lost access to the land that they were farming and had no access to income. A white minister by the name of Lloyd Anderson Foreman was the first one on the very second day of school to bring his white daughter to class and to cross the picket lines and the boycott lines. And that minister and his daughter received every bit as much hatred as Ruby Bridges had the day before. And they said that the things that were shouted at that minister and his daughter were so vile that the newspapers couldn't even print them. There's an actual interesting video, you can look it up online, of a white family who had crossed the picket lines and the boycott lines to send their kids to school, and they were in their house. And the mob had gathered around their house and was banging on their doors and their windows and they were going to make that family pay a price. The interesting thing about fearlessness and about light is that it's willing to stand in the darkness because it really doesn't know or have any other purpose but to shine. Light doesn't know what else to do but shine. Light can't help but to shine, and light in that way is kind of indifferent to the cost because it's compelled by something greater is just what a light does. It can't choose not to be a light. And so where there's a cost, you just become indifferent to it. I've got one purpose, and that's to shine. And if there's a cost to that, let it be. But my purpose is to shine. Whatever that cost is, I leave that in the hands of God. And what's amazing about light is that it cannot stop loving... Even when, through the act of loving, you will be hated. That's what light does. Light says, I'm going to love this person even if it means all of these people hating me. And I can't not love this person. Love cannot stop serving people even when it means that in serving, I'm going to lose my opportunity to gain, I'm going to lose my opportunity to the advantages in life, and I'm going to lose my opportunity to promotions or to opportunities, I'm going to lose all of that. In spite of that, I can't stop but serving this person. I can't stop giving to this person and, and, and being there for them. Love cannot stop praying for people. Even if praying for people means that those very same people are cursing at you and spitting on you and showing hatred towards you, Uh, light cannot stop praying because it doesn't know what else to do but to pray. Light cannot stop befriending the person who has no friends and it cannot stop befriending the person who has been rejected even if it means they will be rejected because light only has one purpose and that is to befriend the friendless no matter what the cost is. Light cannot stop defending those who are suffering injustice because light has no other option but to expose injustice and to call for justice. And light cannot stop but speaking truth even when living in a culture where you might get canceled for speaking the truth. In the face of all of the costs, of all of the risk, of all of the personal pain that might happen to speak the truth, light stands up and it speaks. It was interesting because After the religious leaders had threatened the disciples, they let them go. The disciples go back to where all of the believers are gathered and they're celebrating and they're having a big party. And you would think it would be reasonable for the disciples to to kind of cut their losses and go, Man, we stood in the very same place Jesus stood and he ended up dead and we managed to escape by the the skin of our chinny chin chin. chins. Like we we just, whew, glad glad we survived that. Let's not do that again. It'd be very reasonable. If they just said, we've survived, we're not going to do it again. But that is the complete opposite of what they did. So at the end of their celebration, they said, let's pray. And listen to the prayer that Peter and John, the other apostles, and the other believers prayed. It said, and now, O Lord, hear their threats and give us, your servants, great boldness in preaching your word. There is that word again. And if we're going to be light into our world, into our classrooms, workplaces, communities, and families, then we need to pray that God will give us the boldness to be indifferent to the cost. And our generation needs nothing more than followers who are willing to pay the cost to be a light into this dark world. Second and the last thing that I want to share about fearlessness is that fearlessness means being indifferent towards failure. For anyone who is uh, a sports fan or an athlete, you know that in, in sports, your, your confidence is tied to your win-loss record. If you're an athlete or you're a fan of a team and your team is winning uh, and your confidence grows with every win, and if you've got a, a winning record, you kind of go into every game with more of an expectation of winning. Conversely, if you're losing a bunch, you probably go into the game expecting, I, I think I'm going to lose... This game, and uh, the disciples—they were on a bit of a winning streak in the story that they read. A couple, couple good wins had happened for them, but in context of the whole season, or in context of their whole record, it wasn't that long ago that these very same disciples had suffered some massive, embarrassing losses, like complete, utter failures and losses. If you think to the time when Jesus was being crucified. All of the disciples, they just scattered with their tails between their legs. They, they just ran away. They weren't even there for Him. They couldn't show up. When the chips were down, they, they, they scattered. You have Peter who, who denied Jesus and wouldn't even admit that he was a friend of them. And, and then one of the twelve, Judas, had betrayed Jesus. And so if you were one of the eleven that was left, it would have been reasonable to kind of be looking to your left and right and wondering, is somebody else in here going to do what Judas did? Is there anybody else in this group that might turn us all in? Peter, yeah, he walked on water for a couple steps, but he also nearly drowned. And that wasn't exactly a win. They had gone out and prayed for people to be released from demons, and they had failed at doing that. They couldn't even do a simple task like that. And if you were kind of sum up uh, how good they were as students, you would kind of just say, you know, they didn't quite get it. Like story after story, the disciples just weren't getting it. And even the Pharisees' estimation of these men revealed that. So they looked at these guys and they knew that they were uneducated and common men. And so the inadequacies of the disciples and their past failures were right in front of their face. Like they were fresh. They still remembered denying Jesus. They still remembered scattering. They still regretted not having the courage to stand next to their friend when he needed them to be there. And yet what we see in them is we see this growing sense of fearlessness within them, even in the face of past and potential failures even in the the face of remembering how they had failed and not knowing for sure whether they would succeed, in, in the face of all of this failure, we see this growing fearlessness. And I think many of us, like the disciples, are faced with the same dynamic. Maybe many of us look at our record as a Christian. We look at our record as being a light unto the world. Maybe we don't have the best record. Maybe we look back on times where we did try to be a light unto the world and it didn't work very well. Maybe we look back on times where we had an opportunity to be light unto the world. We had an opportunity to do something or to say something and we kept our mouth shut and we regret that and we remember that. Maybe there was a time for us to be a light unto the world and then we were threatened. And unlike the disciples, we decided to back off. And so sometimes when we hear a message about being a light unto the world, like, man, I tried that. I didn't want to pay the price or I paid the price and I don't want to do it again. One of the messages in this series, the last message in this series is going to be entitled Living Powerfully and it's going to be a whole message about how the Holy Spirit causes us to shine. So I don't want to steal the thunder from that last message, but I want to touch on the Holy Spirit this morning. Pharisees' observation of the apostles is that they had recognized that they had been with Jesus. And I think that's a fair observation, but it's not a a complete observation because the, the disciples had been with Jesus for three years, and they weren't the men that they were on this day. Something else besides being with Jesus had happened in their life. And for my mind, and I would argue, that what happened to the apostles wasn't that they were just been with Jesus, but they had been filled with the Holy Spirit. That the day of Pentecost did such a transformational work in the apostles' lives and that they had become so filled with the Holy Spirit that they had no concern for personal failure anymore. The fear of failure that had dominated them before Pentecost, we now see fading away after Pentecost. We see there, there being this energy, this power, this confidence that belied their track record. They weren't getting that confidence from their track record. They were getting this confidence from somewhere else. The filling of the Holy Spirit allowed them to live fearlessly. The the filling of the Holy Spirit allowed them to overlook the potential of failure and say, you know what, His power is greater than my failure. His power is going to be at work in me. His power is going to show up. They were so rooted and filled with the power of the Holy Spirit that they were indifferent to failure. And I think the lesson that we learn here is that when we're filled with the Holy Spirit, we we will become less concerned about our own failures or potential failures. In other words, we'll see opportunities to minister, to serve, to speak, to be a light unto the world, and we will know that there is a threat of massive failure, and we'll go, you know what, what matters more is that in my weakness, in my brokenness, in my insecurity... I'm going to step into this place and trust that the power of the Holy Spirit will fill me up and will fuel this thing. So it's imperative for us to be fueled by the power of the Holy Spirit if we are going to be a light in the dark world. Because Satan will always be there to say, hey, 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 oh, before you turn that light on, it's also going to expose all of your failures. If you're going to turn that light on, And everybody's going to be looking at you. They're going to see all of your inadequacies. Are you sure you want to do that? And in that moment, we're going to have to be indifferent towards our failures and our inadequacies. And we're going to have to say, nevertheless, shine through me, God. Earlier, I had said that one of our prayers needs to be, God, give me the boldness to be indifferent to the cost. And secondly, I think, we need to pray, Holy Spirit, fill me up with Your presence so that my fear of failure doesn't get in the way of Your glory. God needs us to be willing to fail in order that people see His glory. We can't let fear dominate our lives. And if we try to step into that place and bring that light and it fails and people reject us, then we just get back at it and say, God, Continue. Continue to be at work in me. I will shine where you call me to shine. And where no matter how people respond or or how people uh, react, I'm going to continue to do that. And maybe in times I opened up my mouth and said something and and what came out wasn't exactly what I wanted to come out. I'm I'm still going to do that. And and maybe you offered to pray for somebody and you prayed and you didn't see anything happen. And the temptation is, I'm never going to do that again. The Holy Spirit is here. And say, keep shining. Keep shining. Let me fuel your efforts. I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward now as we move into to the end of our service. There's two prayers that throughout this message I shared with you that I want to encourage us to pray today at the beginning of this series. And the first prayer is, God, give me the boldness to be indifferent to the cost. For those of us who are anywhere on the spectrum of being introverted, for any of us who struggle with with being bold and, and living conspicuous life, and if some of you are sitting out there looking at my shirt and saying I would never wear a shirt like that in public, God is saying pray for boldness. Pray for a boldness to come in your heart that will allow you to stand out in ways that in the past you've never stood out. The lives, the eternal destiny of people, depends on the ones of us in this room shining a light. Showing them the way to God through the life that we live, through the words that we say, through the love that we share. We need to pray for that boldness even in the face of cost and risk. And secondly, We need to pray for the Holy Spirit to fill us with His presence so that our fear of failure doesn't get in the way of God's glory. So that we won't look back on our failures or look at our inadequacies and say, no, God, let somebody else's light shine. They're better suited for the job. That we'll recognize that God's light is within us and we just need to let Him shine. So as we go into this time of reflection and response, I want to invite the, the prayer team to come forward. And worship team is going to lead us in this song. We're going to have prayer available at, at the front of the, of the stage. So, so just a couple things. As we were singing that song, um, Jesus my Christ, you're, you're My One Desire, I just felt that there were some people during that song that was really sensing God working and moving on your life. And that, that God was calling you to make Him your one desire. And so, if in response to that song God was doing something, I want to encourage you to come forward and to receive prayer for that. And then in response to today's message, if, if you want to say, you know what, I want to be a light unto the dark world. I want to be a light to my family, to my class, to my workplace. I want to be a light. And I want to encourage you to come forward today and just say, Holy Spirit, fill me up. That I would not be afraid to let your light shine. So, Holy Spirit, we just invite you here now. Come, Holy Spirit, into this place, and we just we want to respond to you. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Yeah, just there's some people here today who, who know for a certainty that there is something in their life that they have prioritized over God. and... And they know that God is is putting his finger on that and saying, let's change that. And if that's you today, I would really encourage you not to leave here without getting prayer and sharing with these folks up here. There's a priority in my life that needs to be shifted. And then for everyone else, I would pray that you would come forward and just say, fill me up, Holy Spirit, that I might be a light in the places that you've called me to live my life. Amen. Let's worship and respond to the Holy Spirit. Thank you.